This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday afternoon program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand Them for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever is on your heart, all you need to do is call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producers. Hey, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow. So it is an opportunity for you, especially ladies, if you have any questions or need any encouragement from her on the date they show tomorrow. Uh, And then tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching uh, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their amazing courage and faith, uh, inspirational courage and faith. Well, let's get to phone calls and questions right away. Our first call is from Victor from San Antonio on line one. Victor, you're on the air. Thanks for calling. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Uh, I just wanted to uh, let you know that uh, your, uh, your the resources you have, the uh, this question and answer, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's really refreshing uh, the way you thoroughly answer the questions. Uh, you take time to answer them, and uh, you don't you're not push pressure pressured to end the question quickly. Same thing with your your uh, when you teach the Bible uh, and on the other the other lessons that you teach in the morning on both KSLR and, and KDRY. So I appreciate that that you take your time uh, on each verse by verse teaching, and it's really a blessing. Uh, Thank you, Victor. The question that I have. You're welcome, sir. The question I have right now is uh, uh, on the uh, the rapture. Uh, I under, I know that the, uh, the the we're in the time of uh, the Gentiles, and I know mm-hmm. that uh, I'm just having trouble how to, you know, when when uh, the, the clock stopped uh, at well, I think it was 483 years, uh, we were able to to know what what time uh, the the actual dates. That led it up there, and all of a sudden it stopped. And, I, and I'm assuming it's because uh, when Christ uh, was rejected by the Jews uh, mm-hmm. as a Messiah, then uh, that's the beginning of the Church Age, which is uh, 
the uh, age of the Gentiles, and then at the rapture, that, that age ends, and that's when God uh, returns uh, to begin using the Jews uh, to evangelize. I just wanted to know if there's a if there's a, a, a verse or, or a passage of scripture that we can that we can uh, conclude that the um, that, that that the clock stopped at that 483 mark, leaving that seven year left for the for the tribulation period. It's not going to begin until after the church is raptured out. As one of there's any other passages, I know it's, we find it in Daniel mentioning it, mm-hmm. and in Thessalonians. Yeah, Victor, in, in Daniel chapter 9, where we're given the most information, it says that the, the, the Messiah will appear, but he'll be cut off with nothing. And one of the problems, of course, is that Jews never expected that the Christ, when he came, uh, w- would do anything other than establish the kingdom of God. And um, uh, Daniel's prophecy very specifically says that he's cut off with nothing. That is really... Uh, the end of the 483 years um, uh, from, from that point forward um, to the the what we call the triumphal entry, uh, that's when uh, the 483 years actually stopped. That's 483 Jewish years. That's 360-day uh, calendar years. Um, and we know when that day was. It was April 6, 32 AD when Jesus was was. Uh, declared to be the Christ. A week later, he was dead, cut off with nothing. And from that point forward, um, the, the the prophetic clock stopped. We're in a pause, and Paul calls it, as you pointed out, Victor, the times of the Gentiles. We have no other information about that date other than the fact that the times of the Gentiles actually commenced with the church age. And that began, of course, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. So from that point forward, the mission is different. Uh, instead of Jesus coming first to the Jews, uh, the, the gospel will be preached throughout the whole world. Uh, we know from Romans chapters 9 and 11 that, that there's a finite number of Jews, uh, I'm sorry, of Gentiles who are going to be saved. And when those uh, that number is full, and we don't know what the number is. I keep thinking every night or every Sunday when somebody gets saved, I keep thinking, this could be the last one, Lord. Uh, and that's going to be the last one, and we're going to be out of here. So uh, the rapture of the church, as you've heard me say, Victor, is next on the prophetic calendar. It could happen at any instant, uh, and we just need to be ready, occupying until he comes, doing the work of spreading the Great Commission uh, telling people about Jesus. So uh, that's the next thing on the rapture or on the prophetic calendar. And Victor, just for your information, a week from Friday night, uh, I'll be doing this this coming Friday, uh, the church at Laodicea. A week from this Friday night, I'm going to be doing an extensive teaching on the rapture of the church in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. So maybe you can watch it. Uh, my notes are available online at calvaryessay.com uh, as well as the teachings. And uh, I hope that I hope that helps. Thank you, Victor, very, very much for the nice things and appreciate your interest. Jesus is coming soon. Kindly, you have a good day, sir. God bless you. Thank you, Victor. Bye-bye. Thanks very much.
340-9585. I was having some throat issues. Here is a question from, an anonymous question from our email inbox. Um, it says, I trust God and believe, I trust God and believe for everything in my life. I struggle with fear only of my loved one's salvation. My grown children are not saved. One is backslidden, living with his girlfriend. One wants nothing to do with God or religion. And the oldest says he can't believe my Jesus because of all the heartache in the world and why God would knowingly create people who are going to spend eternity in hell. I know they are lies from the devil and excuses to be able to keep their sinful lives as they wish. Let me, before I finish reading this, let me say... I think for all parents, we need to take a, a cue from this person. Um, honestly, uh, the, the only reason these things make any sense at all is because people want to find a reason to keep on sinning. And this mother, I think, it may be a father, but 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 this uh, uh, this person uh, gets that. And we need to be honest. Um, you know, when people are running away from God, when they're going to try to find excuses to sin and justifications for their sin, it's just easy for them to, to ask questions that aren't really honest questions at all. Why wouldn't God create people who are going to spend eternity in hell? God doesn't create them. We make them. We have a, a sexual relations and babies are the result. God gives everybody a chance to live. He blesses the saved and the unsaved alike. So who is God to deprive people of their free will choice regarding where they're going to spend eternity? And so what should God do? Abort babies that he knows aren't going to say yes to him? Of course not. God wouldn't do that. Those questions are so dishonest. And again, it just points to somebody who wants to continue to sin. Uh, I, I don't even think they're lies from the devil. I just I just think that's what we humans do to justify what we want to be able to do. Uh, the heartache in the world, God isn't responsible for one bit of that heartache in the world. The heartache in the world is, is well, we humans are fully to blame for that. So uh, I appreciate that. Let me finish, uh, let me finish this question. Um, I see you and Mama Paula with full joy, and I know you have one son who's not walking with the Lord right now. Please help me with not fearing every day for their eternal damnation. I pray about it continuously, but have no peace about it. Thank you, Pastor. Um, I'm so sorry. I, I, I know the pain that this causes. Um, we do have a son who is not saved. Uh, it's not about walking with the Lord or not. He's not saved. He's not born again. Uh, our youngest son is the nicest young man, young man, young man to me. He's 46 years old. Uh, he's nice. He's a family man. He's responsible. He's got a good job. He's successful. Uh, the world would look at him and say he's just as about as successful as you can possibly be. But apart from Jesus, we know that that's not the case. Now, here's how Paula and I deal with this. Um, we, one, of course, we pray, and I know you're on your knees praying as well. Uh, but, but we trust God. Uh, that doesn't mean God's going to save them, but here's what we know for sure. We know that God is going to do everything short of forcing them to believe. He's going to make it hard for them, and we've seen that happen. I hope this encourages you, but in just the last couple of weeks, we've seen kids who at one time were walking with the Lord, 
uh, whose lives have turned into a mess because of sin, and we've seen them come running back to Jesus. Why? Because we're praying, because God loves them, because God is the one who's actually constructing circumstances in their lives to make it difficult. God makes it really, really hard for us to spend eternity in hell. And I think one of the things that we all have to be able to deal with is God allows people free will. We have to be okay with that. And we know that if our children do not accept Jesus Christ, it's a choice they made and consequences that they will have to bear. Does it make us happy to know God is just and God is fair and God is doing everything he can? Well, of course, we understand that's true, but it breaks our heart here for those who will not be in heaven. But we've got to trust the Lord. You know, Jesus, when he was walking the earth, he looked into people's eyes all the time. He knew the ones who were going to reject him. He made an invitation. He offered salvation and people rejected it. Jesus wept a lot. As parents, we will weep a lot. Now imagine God's sorrow. It's infinitely greater than ours because God looks at everybody as a child and he wants them all. So I don't know uh, how you can be, uh, how I can help you with being fearful about it, but I think uh, faith simply remembers that God is going to t- do everything that he can. Short of forcing them to believe, God is going to do every single thing that he can to construct circumstances so that they'll turn to him. And as a parent, we've got to leave our children, especially the grown ones making bad decisions, we've got to leave those children in the hands of God. We can't interfere, we can't intervene, we can't save anybody. But one of the things that you can do is make sure that your life is full of joy as well so that your kids, when their world falls apart, they will know that mom or dad's Jesus is a source of joy and peace. And if we're walking around in fear all the time or if we're, 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 we're sad all the time because our kids aren't walking with the Lord, um, then, then they're going to look at Jesus and say, well, you weren't even enough for my mom or for my dad to be happy. So I think we've got to be concerned with our witness. And I tell my kids all the time, I want you in heaven. I can't imagine heaven without you. But I can't make that choice for them. And I keep knocking on the door of heaven continually to ensure that God is doing everything that he can to bring them to faith in Christ. I know how you feel, but rather than praying about it continuously, this is a place. You say you pray about it continuously, but have no peace about it. This is a place where faith will bring you peace. Faith will simply say, God, they're in your hands. I can do nothing. You love them more than I do. And for me personally, that is the one thing that comforts me more than anything else. God, you love them way more than I do, infinitely more than I do. And your heart is broken more than mine is with their sin. And God, you're going to chase them to the ends of the earth. So thank you for that. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, You're right. We are filled with joy But unfortunately, that joy um, doesn't really have anything to do with uh, with our sons 
uh, eternal destination. Our joy is in Christ. We've got to be with Jesus. Here is a question from Sarah from our email inbox. She says, hello. I was listening today and caught the last few minutes. I heard you speak about Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I didn't hear everything that was said, but I wanted to know how you see those words connected to Psalm 22. I've heard others say that Jesus said those words for the crowd so that the crowd would be prompted to think of Psalm 22. Kind of like if I was to say, uh, when peace like a river, or wouldn't it be nice (laughs) if we were older? I'm not sure I get that. Was Jesus wanting them to remember the end of the psalm? So his followers wouldn't be discouraged, so they would be reminded that Jesus was giving his life up, not that it was being taken from him, that Jesus wasn't scared or worried, as opposed to Jesus making a factual statement about being forsaken by God. Just curious about your thought on those things. I hope you and yours are well. Sarah, thank you. we, We are doing well. I appreciate it very, very much. Psalm 22 was universally accepted as messianic by Jews. So Jesus was doing two things on the cross. Now, one of the things that we have to understand, the nature of prophecy is that 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 psalm was written prophetically, obviously, many, many, many years before Christ. So when God does that, he's simply reporting what Jesus said. Jesus was forsaken by God. And so he asked the question. You know, one of the things I find interesting about this, Sarah, is that this is the only time that Jesus called his father anything other than father or Abba. Father was his favorite designation, but he would call him Abba, which is sort of a a daddy version of, of father. And on the cross, this was the only time he called him my God. My God, it's, it's like Jesus saying what we say. Jesus was a human. Remember that. It was like we say, where are you, God? I can't believe you're not here. You're not hearing my prayers. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he truly was forsaken by God as Jesus accepted the, the, the penalty for the sins of the world. As my sin and your sins, Sarah, uh, were put on him, God the Father forsook him. That's how it was connected to Psalm 22. But Psalm 22, remember was was a very, very long time before that. So again, God was just reporting prophetically as though it was in the in the moment. Now, here's the other thing that was happening. Because it was universally accepted as messianic by Jews, Jesus also, in his mind and heart, was evangelizing them. And you uh, hinted at that. Um, he was letting them know by saying that, that what they were watching was the fulfillment of that messianic psalm. In other words, I'm the one, the one you are crucifying, I am the one that you've been waiting for. Now we also know, uh, when he cried out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do, we know that those two statements had a lot of effect, a lot of impact. Um, Just 50 days later, the day the church was born, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jewish men gave their heart to Jesus Christ. A few days later, another 5,000 men, plus their families. So the, the church was exploding. Jesus was simply letting the word of God do the work in the heart of those men and women. And so when, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
um, uh, later, another example, when Paul heard Stephen say, lay not this sin to their charge or to their, their account, uh, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, would have remembered, I heard Jesus say those same words. So the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God, was working on their hearts. And that's why there were so many, when Peter preached that message, there were so many ready to receive Jesus Christ. So uh, he was evangelizing, but he was also being forsaken by his father. That wasn't just a figure of speech. It was a factual statement, to use your term, about being forsaken by God. Those are my thoughts, Sarah. Thank you very much. And again, I appreciate you uh, asking about uh, our family. We're doing well. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from... Dwayne, uh, he, he says, Romans 2, Paul says, the doer of the law will be justified. I thought we couldn't be justified by the law. Let me read the verse, Dwayne, and then I'll answer the, the question or, or address your statement. Uh, Romans 2, verse 13 says, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, you have to remember, Jews believed that by having the law, they were justified. They were, they were, um, that was the means by which they were going to be saved. Jesus, of course, is trying to communicate through the Apostle Paul that nobody can, can obey the law. So what he's saying to the Jews, Paul is, is it's not having the law that, that justifies you. It's being obedient to the law. And Jesus basically said you have to keep the whole law. If you violate the law at one point, then you violate the entirety of the law. So it's not like you can keep most of it. You're going to be okay. You're going to skate by. If you violate the law in one point, then you're guilty. Now, Dwayne, Jesus raised the stakes exponentially in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said things like, you've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you look at a woman with lust, you're already guilty of adultery. So Jesus takes it one step farther and he goes behind the curtain to the spirit of the law. And what he's saying basically is, it is, it is that it is impossible. It is impossible, not hard, not difficult. It's impossible to keep the law because the law's ultimate purpose, according to the Apostle Paul, was to be a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ when we find out how far short we fell. Paul said, I wouldn't even have known what coveting was until I read the law. Thou shalt not covet. And suddenly there was this desire to covet things that, that arose in his heart. So um, Paul is simply saying, to Jews, if you want to be justified, you got to keep the law perfectly. And as I said, Jesus raised the stakes in the Sermon on the Mount. He made it even more difficult by going not just to the letter, but to the spirit of the law. And that's why he says in the next chapter of Romans, Romans 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God, the result is that we are all condemned. In John chapter 3, Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus, in the chapter that is so famous, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. Just prior to him saying that in the 16th verse, Jesus said that we are born condemned already. 
So even the babies among us are guilty of sin. And if you don't think babies are guilty of sin, you've never had a child. (laughs) Thank you, Dwayne. Good question. We've got uh, less than two minutes. Let me see if I can get to this question. Um, Okay, I better do this one because this one might take a little longer. This is from Rex. He says, what is the difference between demons and fallen angels? Rex, I don't think there's any difference at all. Uh, um, demons um, are, are fallen angels. They they had uh, they didn't keep their first estate, uh, and and I, I think basically they're exactly the same thing. Um, there are differences in in power and position between the angels, whether they're angels who are good angels or demons, fallen angels, uh, and demons have different levels of power. Um, but uh, I think there is no difference at all between them. I think what we see with demons and demonic activity are the angels that left their first estate, and sometimes you'll see them sort of gathering together, Um, but the the truth of the matter is that uh, they are the same. They're one and the same. So, Rex, I hope that answers your question. Well, we are running short on the first half hour of the program um, we'd love your live calls and questions for the second half of the show, 340-9585. Uh, if you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and we will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program today, and we'd love your calls at 340-9585. Here is a question from Leslie. She wants to know, are Christians right to hold on to their rights Instead of obeying what the government tells us to do, things like closing churches, masking, vaccines, etc. Leslie, we are, we live in this world, but we're not of this world. I'm not going to beat around the bush here. I'm just setting a bit of a foundation for your question. But make no mistake, we're, we're two kingdom people. We, we, like the Apostle Paul, we will use the rights that are given to us to further the gospel, to further um, the, the, our callings, to do what we can. Um, but, but our kingdom is not the kingdom of earth. It's the kingdom of heaven. And we have to remember that. I think the problem is that Christians, um, especially those who aren't really well taught biblically, uh, I think we, we get our kingdoms confused. Uh, we want heaven to, on earth, and so we we insist on our rights, hoping to make things easier for us or or more understandable for us. Now, uh, are we right to hold on to our rights? We have inalienable rights given to us uh, by the Constitution of this nation, and uh, I, we're not wrong to want those rights. However. 
when the government tells us to do something, we ought to obey as long as what they're asking us to do doesn't come into conflict with what God is asking us to do. Now, as you know, over the last year and a half or so, there have been a lot of these questions that people are wrestling with. Uh, closing churches, uh, we're told in Scripture very specifically not to forsake the assembling together of the saints. In other words, we need to be together with other believers in worship. We need to be serving. We need to be using our spiritual gifts. And I can simply say that we will never close our church again uh, at a government mandate. When when the, the, the epidemic or pandemic just first started, nobody knew what COVID was. Uh, the 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 predictions were frightening. Everybody was terrified. Uh, people thought if they got it, they were going to die. We were told that millions of people were going to die. And so when our government asked us to close churches or to close really all public assemblies and closing workplace environments, they asked us to shelter in place in our homes. Uh, it seemed like a reasonable thing to do at first. But then more information came out, and we found that the, the, the pandemic wasn't nearly as bad as was predicted. We also found that the, the, the powers that be kept changing their, their uh, the stories and the uh, mandates. Um, um, it, it just became time to say, well, we're, we're going back to church. We here at Calvary Chapel did that, as did a lot of other churches. Thank the Lord we live in a state with a governor who gave us the right to do that. I think we were closed here for about, what, six weeks, nine weeks? Nine, nine weeks. Uh, and then it just got to the point where it's, no, we got we got to open. And, and there were people that didn't think we should do that. But remember, they were contradicting what the Bible tells us to do. One of the things, unless I'm going to go into a little more detail here probably than you care about, but one of the things that that we watch as pastors, we watched people's lives spinning out of control. You know, we've got to minister to the people that God has given us. We love them and, and we want what's best for them. We watch their lives. People don't do very well on their own. People don't do very well when they're out of fellowship. And so we wanted to be able to offer an opportunity for them to get back to a healthy place with the Lord. So we will never close our church again. And I know there are a lot of people who have come to the same conclusion. Even as I say that, there are other churches who remain closed even now. So, I, I mean, it's it's a matter of... of what you feel like you're being led to do, but I can't imagine ever closing churches. Uh, the government that is asking us to mask, we, we again, we're fortunate to live in a state where masks aren't required. Um, so we're, we're following the rules when we were allowed to come back and open the church with the governor's blessing. Uh, we required masks here uh, until the governor uh, dismissed the mask, the mask mandate. Um, so, so those things, um, I, if, if they were to reinforce those things, um, we would probably here at Calvary Chapel resist. And I think with biblical, uh, a strong biblical foundation. Now the vaccines, I'm going to talk about this for a moment as well, because, uh, the vaccines are really troubling to me. 
Uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not a conspiracy theory person. I want to honor God. I want to be healthy as long as I can. I'm a kid that grew up in the vaccination area. Uh, era, rather. I, I was vaccinated for polio. I was vaccinated for whooping cough. I was vaccinated for mumps and measles and chicken pox and everything else. And so vaccines worked then. And I stressed that then <laughs> we didn't get those diseases and we basically eradicated diseases, children's diseases. So I'm not an anti-vaccination person at all. But I'm not at all comfortable with the government telling me that I have to do something to put put an untested vaccine. I mean, the vaccines that I grew up with had been tested over numbers of years. And so they knew when they started giving them out what the side effects were going to be, what the long-term effects were going to be. Um, we, we got no such testing period with these vaccines. And there's a lot of people who are suffering severe side effects from the vaccines and nobody can tell them that well that wasn't supposed to happen but you know the future will be okay nobody can tell us that so i'm i'm just not at all in favor of the government telling us what we have to do there's going to be a lot of people leslie who are going to lose jobs uh, i just heard from um one of my guys here that that his son was told he couldn't return to his college campus in California, couldn't return to his college campus uh, until he was vaccinated. I mean, and you know, they're paying a lot of money for this college campus. Um, I I don't think that's reasonable. Uh, People in the military are being forced to be vaccinated against this. Uh, You know, they've been military people. Every time you get sent overseas, they vaccinate you against everything. So it's kind of hard for somebody in the military to say, well, you know, I've got a, an objection to vaccines because they've been taking them. Uh, but, but just this idea of a mandate. So I guess the summary of this is that Christians need to do what is consistent with the Word of God, and they need to do what is consistent with the conscience that God has given them, seeking the counsel of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, ask the Lord who gives it generously. Um, I think we need to make these decisions in prayer. I think the difficulty comes in when we Christians are involved in all these internet conspiracies and 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 we're buying these outlandish claims. It's the mark of the beast and such. Uh, I, I think when we 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 embarrass ourselves, Leslie, when we do that. So um, Romans fourteen twenty three: Anything not of faith is sin. If you can, in good conscience. Uh, make a decision, then you can hold on to it. Um, I would lean to doing what the government asks you to do as long as it doesn't violate the already revealed Word of God. So let's say I hope that made sense. I I rambled a bit, but I hope that made sense to you. Here's a question from Monty. Monty says, Do you think the final generation began in 1948? If so, it seems like we have to be close to the end. Yeah, I don't connect the two things, Monty. Uh, I think the final generation you're talking about comes from uh, Jesus talking to his disciples. He said, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things have come to pass. Um, The final generation is the generation of people alive when all those signs and wonders that Jesus pointed to uh, take place. 
uh, when when you start seeing the prophecies of Joel fulfilled, when you start seeing um, the signs and wonders, um, um, prophecy being fulfilled, um, nation against nation, earthquakes increase, uh, those kinds of things, uh, the, the people that live and see that are the last generation. Your reference in 1948 is when Israel um, was returned to their homeland, gathered, regathered as a nation uh, in their homeland. Uh, we know that happened in 1948. Uh, but but that's, that's just sort of a sign that the end is coming near. Jesus said that these are the beginning of birth, sign, or birth pains. Uh, 1948, you can't say that's the beginning of generation. Uh, we're in, in uh, a generation is anywhere from 40 years. Some say it's 100 years. Uh, but um, I, I think that misses the whole point of Jesus's talk about the generation that sees these things um, will not perish until all these things have passed. Now, the good news of this is uh, it does seem like we are close to the end really at the end. Again, it doesn't have anything to do with 1948, but all we have to do is look around. Look at a world that's rejecting God. Look at uh, all the consternation again over Israel. Look at um, the, 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 the the reaction of the church, the, the great falling away. I believe I said in response to a question yesterday, I believe the great falling away is already happening. Um, so uh, in my mind, Monty, there is no doubt that we're in the final generation. And it's no doubt that Jesus is coming very, very soon. Um, but I just don't think 1948 has anything to do with it. It was just God's perfect timing for Israel to regather in their homeland. Thank you for that question. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor on if a Christian falls under church discipline... What does it mean to treat them like unbelievers since they are already saved? Well, Anonymous, I think the whole point of treating them like unbelievers is to make them examine their heart. Um, we treat them like we would treat somebody who doesn't know Jesus. If, if a man or a woman who says they know Jesus, they say they're born again, but they're living in willful, continual sin, uh, they are way, way, way more accountable. And so uh, Paul does this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a man, the church is aware of the sin. He's in, uh, guilty of this horrible sin. People know about it. And Paul says, I've already handed a man like that over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Put the man out of fellowship. We're told as believers not to have anything to do with professing Christians who are continuing to sin. Now, one of the reasons, Anonymous, I think that we're getting close to the end is because churches aren't paying any attention to that. Christians aren't paying any attention to that. You know, if somebody was living with somebody they're not married to in a sexual relationship, um, or somebody was living in a, a homosexual lifestyle or, or transgender lifestyle, if somebody was stealing continually, Somebody had this terrible temper and, and they, they would fight all the time. Um, if people were getting drunk or doing drugs and that was a, a, a lifestyle choice that they kept making, um, I would tell them, you're not saved. And I would give them the gospel. But if somebody insists they're saved and they keep coming to church and we've got to put them under discipline and what that means is we've got to put them out. 
and we put them out for the benefit of the rest of the body. It doesn't mean that we don't love them. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for them. But by treating them for, with, as an unbeliever, we're taking them out from under the cover of the church. And, and they're on their own. And Satan is going to have his way with them. And so that's what it means. And, and church discipline is one of those areas that frankly just isn't done very well. Like I said, if I put somebody out of the church for living with somebody they're not married to, there's a whole bunch of people here who would, would uh, in any church, not just ours, but they would refuse to cut them out of their lives. Well, they won't. They think we're judgmental. They'll hate us. They're my friend or it's family member. Um, and the reality is the most loving thing that we can do is put them in a position where they have to deal with God. So I hope that answers your question, Anonymous. Thanks very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is another anonymous call. This one hurts my heart. I've had problems with trusting pastors since I had a pastor flirt with me in the church I grew up in. How can I ever trust a pastor again? Um... You know, you don't, you, you, I, I think we've got to be realistic enough to understand that because a pastor violated your trust doesn't mean that all pastors fall in the same category. I think one of the things that the scriptures continually exhort us to do is to make ourselves vulnerable. We trust God. And, and you had a bad pastor. And when I see pastors who are guilty of these kinds of things, uh, believe me, it makes me angry. But it doesn't cause me not to trust other pastors just because there was a bad apple. You know, unfortunately, just because you're a pastor doesn't mean your flesh is any better than an unbeliever. My flesh, after 26 years pastoring here, 30 years walking with Jesus, my flesh is every bit as ugly and stinky as it was before I got saved when I was guilty of doing all kinds of horrible things. So this is a pastor who is in the flesh. By the way, not all pastors are saved. So here's what you do. You just say, Jesus, you said that I need to be in church. I need to be a part of a fellowship. That means I need to trust people again and ask him to help you and he'll do it. And what he'll do, Anonymous, is he will ask you to lift your head, lift your eyes to heaven. He'll tell you, I've got you in this. And so what you do is simply find a pastor who loves Jesus, who teaches the word, a church where you have the opportunity to serve others, use your gifts. But I think this is just one of those hills that we've got to climb over. You can't live with distrust. You can't live trying to protect yourself because if you're trying to protect yourself, God can't protect you. And so you just jump in again. How can I ever trust a pastor again? That's a horrible, horrible thing. Let me also say this, Anonymous. God doesn't trust that pastor either, and that pastor will pay. But there's a lot of wonderful men pastoring churches out there. And if you will open your heart, 
you're going to find one who will love you the way that God wants you to be loved. Man, I can't imagine how I could ever explain to Jesus that that uh, somebody didn't trust a pastor because I flirted with them or because I misrepresented the Lord. Uh, and obviously I get questions like this um, for other reasons as well. But um, most pastors are just trying to serve God. Trust them. God will be with you. Yoli asks, and this is a similar question I had a few moments ago, are Christians losing their rights in the United States? How should we respond? Uh, I think, Yoli, we should expect to lose our rights. Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. We're, we're losing our rights. This last uh, year and a half plus period of time has, has shown us, if nothing else, shown us that if we give a little bit, the government's going to take a lot. Um, but but the way we should respond is is with obedience to God. I think there's a time coming in this country, Yoli, where we're going to have to stand with and for Jesus, and it's going to cost us a great deal. Like I said, with the mandates going on now, people are going to lose their jobs because they don't want to get vaccinated. Um, in Canada, not far from us, in North America, Pastors have spent time in jail because they opened their churches. Um, but how should we respond? I think we've got to be ready to accept the consequences. I mean, think about it. In the first century church uh, and beyond, the, the church of the martyrs, they lost their lives. They didn't try to get out of the consequences. They took a stand for Jesus Christ and were willing to pay the price for whatever the price was for taking that stand. They wanted people to know that I stand with Jesus. Tonight, I'm going to be teaching out of Daniel chapter 3 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they um, they took a stand and it, and it likely cost them their lives. They were thrown into a blazing furnace, but they were willing to pay the price. I think our problem in America is we want to take a stand that costs nothing. And uh, if our rights are taken away, then we've got to, continue to serve Jesus, continue to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think we're there yet, Yoli. I've had people say, well, Christians are being persecuted. There is nothing resembling persecution. It's happening right now to the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America. Historically, there have been Christians who are persecuted unto death. Read um, uh, uh, the New Testament history by F.F. F. Bruce. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, those were persecuted Christians. The Book of Acts talks about Stephen being persecuted and stoned to death. That's persecution. Uh, we're not being persecuted because people cancel us from the culture. We're not being persecuted because people unfriend you on Facebook. Uh, we're being um, um, resisted, to be sure. But I think we've got to be willing to pay the price. And I think uh, one of our problems is that we want all of our rights and we don't want to pay any price for it. And um, that's just not ever the way it's been. So, Yoli, I hope that makes sense to you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We got. I think we're inside of five minutes. Did you say we got four minutes? So probably no time for phone calls now. Brenda says, uh, Pastor Ron, is the rapture of the church seen in Matthew 24? No, Brenda, it's not. And I get asked this question a lot. 
because it kind of feels like the rapture. One will be taken, the other one will be left. Uh, but that has nothing to do with the rapture of the church. Now, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21 is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And if we lose the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry, we lose all of our understanding of this. The Olivet Discourse is, is entirely Jewish. Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem, weeping for them. He's asked questions by his disciples about the end. And Jesus then goes on to explain. But remember, he's dealing with Jews and dealing with Israel. And so there is not a hint of the rapture uh, in the Olivet Discourse. Now, Jesus hints at the rapture in John chapter 14. But beyond that... Um, the rapture is a mystery that was revealed for the very first time by the Apostle Paul uh, to the Corinthian church and, of course, obviously to the other churches um, that would would uh, read those letters. So the rapture of the church is completely separate from Israel. It deals only with the church. Israel's not the church and the church is not Israel. So um, when it says one will be left and one will be taken, the idea is to judgment. He says, pray that you won't be pregnant. Pray that it won't be winter. Um, Why? Because when um, judgment comes and people are surrounding the city, they got to get away quickly. Uh, By the way, this was partially fulfilled in 70 A.D., um, but like a lot of prophecy, it has a dual fulfillment. It will once again uh, be fulfilled in its completeness uh, at the end of the time when what we call the Great Tribulation begins. So, Brendan, no rapture of the church in, in the Olivet Discourse at all. Um, um, when the church is raptured, that will be uh, the beginning of the end. Uh, seven years will be left um, the wrath of God, the, the time of Jacob's distress, the great tribulation, whatever it is you want to call. Here is a question. Yeah, just, over a just over a minute. I've got to find a really easy question here. Um, Amber says, how can we lean not on our own understanding? I have to figure out things for myself, don't I? Amber, when we get in trouble is when we try to figure out things for ourselves. So you've got a Bible. You've got the Spirit of God living in you. Um, What you want to do is say, Jesus, I have no understanding. You know the end from the beginning. And I choose to follow you. So instead of doing what seems right to you or trying to figure out how things are going to be, which leads to expectations that are never going to be met, just seek the Lord in everything. In everything. Don't try to do what you want or what seems right. Instead, just say, Jesus, I want to walk with you. To do that, Amber, you're going to really need to fall in love with your Bible. Hey, we are out of time tonight. I'm going to be teaching in Daniel chapter 3. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.